Seeking for the help of the Lord, I direct your prayerful attention to Ephesians chapter 1. Reading for our text, verses 15 and 16. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 15 and 16. And it is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians that I desire to bring before you which will comprise the verses from verse 16 through to 20 and yet is summed up here in the verses we've read as our text. The Apostle testifies that he had heard two things about the Ephesians. He'd heard their faith in the Lord Jesus and he'd heard of love unto all the saints and in effect he is saying here that this is the evidence of their calling he has spoken very clearly earlier on about the calling of God and the choosing of God of his people from the foundation of the world it's good when we have clearly those evidences from the scripture of what constitutes a real call. John in his epistles, he says we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. And here Paul is taking this same point and adding to it faith because he says, and love unto all the brethren. But when he says, I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, he would have been very mindful of the author and finisher of faith. As he writes in Hebrews, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so where he sees a people that have faith in the Lord, trust in the Lord, and the word profits them, being mixed with faith in them that heard him, he sees a clear evidence of the grace and calling of God. But he doesn't just say, well, if you have faith and if you have love to the brethren, then automatically every blessing and every favour will be conveyed to you or that you will really understand the blessing that you actually have. It might be those that are given a a present and don't really realise the value of it. It's interesting, the, the watch I'm wearing now. I was given that when I, I left the engineering firm to come over here to this land. And for many years I didn't really understand the value of it. And then one day I thought, I'll, I'll look this up, look at the, the, the name on, my, on on the actual watch. And and it must have been nearly a thousand dollars worth at that time. Um, what a valuable watch. And I had it, but I didn't really realise the value of it. 
And many of the Lord's dear people and the apostle here with the Ephesians, uh, he wanted them to know what was really bound up in their calling, the value of, of that calling. And so he knows that those blessings that come from the Lord, they are to be asked for, they are to be prayed for. And so he makes prayer for the Ephesians. And it's a good thing for us to realise here, he gives thanks for them. And I know I've said this uh, other times recently, uh, how often do we give thanks for the people of God? When we see the grace of God, when we uh, realise there's a people of God, do we thank the Lord for them? The Apostle, in nearly all of his epistles, he is giving thanks for those believers. And he's not just giving thanks in his closet before God, which is good, but he's actually writing to them and he's telling them, I am giving thanks for you. And not only that, he's telling them that he is making prayers for them. But it's not just any prayer and leaving them to think, well, why are you praying for us? We are, we are saved, we are called. What are you asking? How will we know if your prayers for us are answered? What do you, if we don't have specific requests, we can't go like Hannah and say, for this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my request, if they're just general petitions. But if we have specific petitions, even small, relative what we might think is small, yet we'd be able to notice that they've been answered and returned thanks. The Apostle in many of the exhortations he always joins in prayer that it is with thanksgiving as well. And that won't just be a general thanks, it will be for specific things. And so he says here that not only does he pray occasionally, but it is a continual giving thanks and continual making mention of you in my prayers. He says, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Unless there be thought, well, the mention in his prayers is just to give thanks, he then goes on in the verses following, telling them what he is asking of the Lord for them what the Lord, he would have the Lord to do for them. And it's good for us to realise it's not just written for the Ephesian church, but it's written for us as well, written for the whole, all of the people of God. The dear Ephesians here, they had love unto all the saints. And of course the Lord has his word to, to all of his people. And so, on to, with the Lord's help this evening, at Paul's request for the Ephesians and for the people of God. Because verse 17, it begins, and we'll read the verses that, that follow what his prayer actually is, making mention of you in my prayers that... The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, 
may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us ward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. And he enlarges more on that, but essentially that is the main points of his prayer. Now really there is one request, but there are several uh, parts uh, to that. And we look at it in some more detail, but the, the one request is that they be uh, given the spirit, verse 17, the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. And then it's broken up into three points afterwards. There's three things that he asks of them, that they might know the hope of his calling, that they might know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and thirdly, his power to usward that believe. He wanted them to know those three things. But the first request was a requesting for wisdom and revelation. He's asking for them a spirit from the Father of glory, that the Father of glory may give unto you the blessings to the church of God are gifts. I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter which shall abide with you forever. Tarry at Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. The gifts are given. They are blood-bought. They are bought because our Lord Jesus Christ suffered, bled and died at Calvary. His people are purchased. He can do with them as he wish. And he has paid their debt. He has made the law honourable. He has satisfied it. And now he can bless them. And all the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. That God has ordained it and Paul told the the, the Corinthians that this was the case that it had pleased God uh, through his wisdom to make that man by wisdom could not find out God he can find out many things and especially in our day we marvel at what wisdom man has been given by God in all manner of medical things, in electronic things, in mechanical things, whatever that but in the things of God, spiritual realm, God has seen fit to make man to be completely ignorant. If ever the fall is known, it is realised in that a complete absence of any knowledge or wisdom or understanding of God at all. And the Lord has ordered it that way, that through the foolishness of preaching, uh, that we might be saved, that we might know 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And that it is through the preaching of the word, the opening up of the word, and through the revelation of God, the wisdom of God, that those blessings are known to the people of God. So when they know them, they know that they've not just learnt it because they've been brought up under the sound of the truth. They've not just understood it naturally, but the Lord has revealed it to them. Remember when our Lord asked the disciples what men were saying the Lord Jesus Christ was. Who say men that I the Son of Man am? And various answers were given. And then he said, but who say ye that I am? And Peter said that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the Lord immediately said, Blessed art thou, Simon by Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And he traced that knowledge that Peter had to a blessing from heaven. And Paul is acknowledging this here. When he is asking for blessings for the Ephesians, he is asking it as a blessing from heaven. That it is a gift from heaven. The means shall be the word, the means shall be the preaching of the word, but he traces it for the high decree of heaven. And so that is why it is prayed for, it is asked for. And he's asking for this at the very, very start, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That is true religion, is the Lord giving wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it is the revelation. Blessed art thou, Simon by Jonah, flesh is blood, flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. It is revealed from heaven to men. And in one sense, in being called, they'd already been given this spirit of wisdom and revelation in the faith that they had, the love to the saints. We may say, in their conviction of sinnership, their need of a saviour, in all of those that are called, already their eyes have been opened. The eyes of their understanding have been opened in that way. In the parable of the sower, we have four types of hearers, and only one brought forth fruit. In Matthew 13, we have the first time, and our Lord says, they are they that hear the word and understand it not. The word's taken straight away out of their heart. But the one that bore fruit, it was the one that heard it and understood it. When our Lord rose from the dead, he appeared to the disciples, then opened he their understanding that they should understand the scriptures. And so this is what is the beginning of what Paul is going to ask for specific points, but he is making it very known to these Ephesians that if his prayer is answered, it is because God has given them the spirit of wisdom. It is because God has given them a revelation. And it is a revelation not uh, like the Paul that saw in the fourth heavens or Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration Paul, he points to the grace being greater. My grace is sufficient for thee. Peter, he preaches in Peter, we have a more sure word of prophecy where you are to do well to take heed. The word of God. But that revelation in the knowledge of him, 
is the understanding. Remember the eunuch, Philip coming to him, understandest thou what thou readest? How can I except some man guide me? And he prayed Philip to come up into the chariot and he began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And at the end he went from not knowing whether the prophet was speaking of himself or another man to believing that Jesus is the Son of God and he was baptised on that profession in one sermon. And it is that that's been spoken of here, the understanding. Paul, when he writes to the Hebrews, he says that ye have need of milk and not meat. He said, I can't tell you these deep things. I I want to speak to you about Melchizedek, but you're not ready to be to have those things told you. I've got to tell you more simple things. And the idea is that God's people should grow in grace and be fed by the word and grow in the knowledge of our Lord. And that is where the the central here, it is it is not just any spirit of wisdom and revelation and is not any knowledge, it's knowledge of him, of Christ, of God, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. It's a wonderful thing when we read a, a word and perhaps then suddenly we see it. We say, That's what that means. Now I understand it. Now I can see what is being set before me and to to have those new eyes and new understanding. And this is what he's asking for them. We should never have small views and never listen to Satan when he minimises what we know of the things of God. Sometimes we might speak to uh, those who have not been brought up under the sound of the truth or even those that have in churches and be astounded at their ignorance of the things of God. Well, we read, Who maketh thee to differ? What hast thou than thou hast not received? And how the disciples, they needed their understanding opened. Otherwise they nor we would know the things of God at all. So this is his his preface, this is his first desire uh, for the Ephesians here uh, to have that spiritual understanding and to be able to comprehend those things he was asking specifically for them. Well, there are three things then that he asks of them. The first is that he may know what is the hope of his calling. They had been called, called by grace, but what was bound up with that? What was the hope of his calling? Well, the next chapter, in chapter 2, we read him saying, You hath he quickened. One hope of the calling of God's children is that they are made alive. They once were dead, but now they are alive, spiritually alive. I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of mine hand. 
when we think of calling, how many different words are used to describe that in the word of God? You could be converted, conversion, our Lord in John 3, born again, you must be born again of the Spirit. It is spoken of as a beginning, he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. It is life from the dead. All things passed away, all things become new. So the hope of his calling, where it is a, a, a calling, is to pass from death unto life. The second thing is a new creature. In verse 2, chapter 2, and we're, we're looking through quite a bit of chapter 2 here. He says, We're in, in time past he walked according to the course of this world. The hope of the calling of God's children is that they are following another spirit, not the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. They are made new creatures in Christ. And that hope of the calling of God is that they are not what they once were. I think as Newton says, I'm not what I will be, I'm not what I would be. If you're still the corruption within, but there is that new creature, there is that new start, a beginning brought by God. Also we have in, in verse 3 that deliverance from fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. We still have our old nature, we still have the lusts of the flesh. We still have those things that by nature we uh, relished and walked in. But now in the hope of the calling of God's children is not to be a hope that one day here below I am going to be free from sin. That hope we are not raised up to expect here below. But we are to have that hope. He will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that ye be able to bear it. My grace is sufficient for thee, the Lord said to the Apostle Paul. And that is a hope for the people of God in whatever they know of their old nature, the trials, the temptations of Satan, the pull of the world, is that sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, you are under grace. And that is a hope bound up with the calling of God's children. In verse 4, he speaks of the great love wherewith he loved us. Another hope bound up with the calling of God, the hope of his calling, is to enjoy that everlasting love of God. Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. And you know, if someone loves us, if we have a relative or those that love us, and especially with parents who are children, they know that love will provide everything that they need. And I believe it, it must have been quite a trial for what was to, for dear Mary and Martha when Lazarus was sick they sent to the Lord and they said he whom thou lovest is sick 
They didn't say we want you to do this or that or that. They knew love would do what was right, but they didn't expect the Lord would do in the order he did. And, and yet the Lord had a greater miracle, a greater blessing. And often think of the end of Psalm 107. There are many ups and downs there. Many times they fell down, there was none to help. Then they cried unto the Lord, and the Lord saved them out of their distresses. But at the end we read, Whoso is wise and it will observe these things, even they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. And here the hope of calling is a hope to be already, well there is a knowledge of already being a subject of the great love wherewith not he will love us, but wherewith he loved us, already has. And is to realise something of the love of God that already has been put forth and shown to us that are called by grace, called out of nature's darkness, called into the fellowship of his beloved Son. We have it then in verse 5 and also verse 8 that the hope of the calling of God, the calling itself was a calling by grace and not of works. And that hope of the calling of God is to abide with us, to remember, especially when the Lord shows us more and more what we are by nature, how much we sin in thought, word and deed. This this word, this hope should ring in our ears, not of works. Lest any man should boast, ye are saved by grace, and by grace you will proceed, and you will go on, and by grace you shall endure unto the end, by grace you shall conquer at last. And that is the hope of those called in this way, Let's not just be saved by grace, but continue by grace. Paul says when he writes to the Romans in chapter 5, If while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, how much more being reconciled shall we be saved by his life? If the Lord passed by us when we in our blood and bid us live once we're alive, and now we see our sin, we know what we are, are we to think then, well, now we see what we are, then God will not help us anymore, he will not favour us anymore? That is not to be our hope. Our hope is to that he which hath begun a good work in us will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ, and that it won't be based on our works, good or bad. It will be all of his work, and all of his grace, and all of his mercy. There's also a hope of that which is to come. We have in verses 6 and 7, hath raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ through Christ Jesus. And there's that picture of eternity, the picture of the ages to come and the people of God and they're shown, shown in a greater, fuller measure of all the blessings and all the riches and everything that they have and maybe all the time be 
rose from earth and rose from this time stone. Paul says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ Jesus, we have all men most miserable. And he says that in 1 Corinthians 15, with those who are saying there is no resurrection, not of Christ, not of any any resurrection. And Paul says, if, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then is not Christ raised. If Christ is not raised, then you are dead in your sins. Those who have died have perished. We that preach are liars. We have testified that he raised him from the dead if he did not. Uh, and, and your hope is vain. But he concludes that Christ is risen from the dead. And that gives that hope beyond the grave. Good hope through grace is the hymn writer the saints possess. The fruit of Jesus' righteousness and by his spirit given. And it is a hope beyond the grave. This poor dying world that soon will pass away as infirmities increase. I often think of that Ecclesiastes 12 that describes this slowly taking down of our frame. The eyes are dim, we've got to wear glasses. The hearing is not good, we need hearing aids. The teeth are falling out, the grinders and the grinders is low because the grinders are few. And all these things, they're reminders and no, it gradually increases more and more. And at first it's just like a little knock, a little reminder. This is a mortal frame you have. It's not staying forever. You're not always in this tabernacle. It's being taken down. So here is one thing that starts to fail and then another thing starts to fail. And as we get older and nearer and nearer to our journey's end, that knocking is louder and louder and it's a blessing when the people of God hear it and they hearken to it. I remember driving back from the dentist when I told about one tooth that was to be taken out, falling out, and they said, oh, we, you can do for £3,000, you can put an implant in. Well, I thought, I can't, I'm not going to pay that, I'm going to just have a gap there. And then it come to mind, the sound of grinders low because they are few. The Lord's always ordained that that's going to happen. Our teeth are going to fall out. You're not going to have them all. And, and it was really a comfort. And I thought, the Lord knows all these things. And it is a kind reminder so that we just do not make this world our rest, our home. But makes us think of that which is to come. My dear Uncle Reg, when he was nearing his journey's end, he said, soon, soon I'll have my arm back. I only have one arm. And it's a wonderful prospect to realise that perfection and that hope of the calling, what is bound up with that. Uh, and Paul would want, he wants the Ephesians to know, and the Lord would have the people of God to know uh, what they have in Store. In verse 13 he says, But now in Christ Jesus you there is sometimes far off and made nigh. To be brought nigh. Sin it separates. But to bring nigh. Then we have in verse 14, Here's our peace. And we think of the Lord's words, In me you shall have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And that again is the hope of the calling of God's people that in all their troubles and tribulations he is our peace. 
He is given for the people of God. And that's why the apostle is centering. It is in the knowledge of him. What Christ is to a called person. It is he that has called them. And called them into fellowship with himself and with his dear people. And called them to be a partaker of his glory. The beautiful intercessory prayer in John 17. Father, I pray not that thou hast take them out of the world, but that thou hast keep them from the evil. And then he prays, Father, I will that they whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. And Paul is praying on these lines for those that are called. Now do we know the hope of our calling? If we are called, do we know that hope? Do we often think of that hope? Do we value that hope? Paul is giving thanks for them. And he obviously sees for them or sees what they have, what they don't really see and realise and giving thanks for and he wants them to know what blessing that they have bound up with that calling. And may we know the same. And may it be a real encouragement and a comfort to us. That I think it's John Newton, he that called me here below shall be forever mine. And it is a beautiful hymn. So this is the first thing, specific thing he asks, that they might know the hope of his calling. The second thing is that they might know what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, you might think that this is put in the wrong way. When we think of inheritance, it's something that comes to someone because someone has died. They've left it in their will that when they die, that someone will receive an inheritance that they have not had to work for, uh, but it is theirs upon death. Well, we know in the Word of God that the Lord Jesus Christ is the inheritance of the people of God. Like the Levites, they had no land, they had no inheritance on this earth, there's a lot to them, but the Lord was their inheritance. But then on the other side, the, the people of God are the Lord's inheritance. They are given to the Lord to inherit, to have. They are his people. They are given him and they are given him to redeem and to save and they are given him as a people that are what they are through his death and through his, his sufferings. And this here is, is more pointing, pointing instead of looking at what the people of God have as an inheritance in Christ, it is reminding the people of God that they are Christ's inheritance. Remember the Lord has said, This people have I formed for myself, they shall show forth my praise. Now, so if we had a father and he was a farmer and he had a son and he had a lot of farm machinery 
And he was going to leave that machinery to the son. So he put it in his will, he died, and he gave the machinery to the son. But the machinery didn't work. It was all broken down and it didn't go and it it needed a lot of work done on it. And the son then took all of this broken machinery and he mended it all and he got it all going and the people all the way around looked at this farm now and it's working with lovely tractors and combine harvesters and everything working well and it would all be to the glory of that son who had got this inheritance And he'd made the inheritance to be what it was. It wasn't broken machinery anymore. It was working really well and going very well. Well, in this way, the Father gave to the Son a people, a broken people, a sinful people, a people uh, that were lost and ruined in the fall. The Lord said, Thine they were, thou gavest them they that they were given to the Son to redeem. To not just leave them broken, enemies to God, hateful to God. He was going to change them. He was going to work in their hearts. He was going to redeem them, pay their debt. And he was going to work in them. And they were going to work out what he worked in them. And show forth the praises of him that had called them out of nature's darkness and into his marvellous light. And so then you get a picture where the people of God are like those bits of farm machinery. And so when the people of God are living to the honour and glory of God as the Lord works in them, he which uh, what is worked in, we work out, And those works are to the praise and honour and glory of God. Paul says that I laboured more abundantly than them all, but not I, but the grace of God which was in me. What I am, I am by the grace of God. And can, can we look upon our lives and say, if the Lord had not called us, if he hadn't changed our hearts, my life wouldn't be like it is now. Mine certainly would not. It is by grace that has shaped and fashioned and changed my life from that time and all that the Lord has done and all that the Lord has taught has made me to be what I am. But what I do then, is it showing forth my praise? Is it glorifying me? Paul said, no, I don't want to do that. But it glorifies the Lord, what I do and what I am. And the Lord said, ye are the salt and light of the earth. When the Lord is given his people and they're called by grace, yes, you shall have them in heaven. And in heaven as we have here, they shall see his glory and see his praise. But here below, this is what the apostle desires of the Ephesians. Not only the hope of his calling, but what the riches of the glory of his inheritance, that is, the glory of his people, his inheritance in the saints. What does the Lord have in his saints? You say, how can he have anything? I'm a poor sinner. I'm a black sinner. But we read in Song of Solomon, I am black but comely. And there's what the Lord has. How how can, if there be a saviour, and there is, his name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, there must be a people to save. 
And in saving that people, the Saviour is magnified and glorified. The farmer's son with his machinery, if he's still in engineering and being able to fix and manage these machines and re-renovate them, make them new again, is to be seen he needs some broken machines to work on. And then it's they look at the machines and think, what a wonderful engineer he is. Not a wonderful machine that manages itself. The praise is the one that actually did it. We might have power coming to this building. We do, electricity. But if no one turns on a light and no one turns on heating and no one uses it, then you can say all you like that there's lovely power coming from panels on the roof or from a generator or whatever like that. So I see no evidence of it. I can't see it at all. But as soon as you turn light on, you say, oh yeah, we can see this power. Yeah, it's shining or we're getting the warmth and uh, and it's actually showing forth the power of God and it is in that way as the Lord works in his people bestows upon them their grace all like with the effect of faith in Hebrews 11 we can have a whole list of right through the ages what the people of God did by faith and here Paul has said that he's heard of their faith he's heard of what the Lord had given them in calling and so he wants them to know what the riches is a strange way isn't it could we describe in in our lives as a sinner saved by grace that there is somehow in us the riches of glory in us his inheritance his inheritance in the saints it is what he works in it's what his grace is seen in his glory is seen in the answers to their prayers glorifies the Lord. His going before them in providence glorifies the Lord and magnifies him. We read the book of Esther, we read the book of Ruth, we read the book with Joseph and all that they went through. What does it magnify? The Lord's hand, the Lord's work, the Lord's love. Their sins, their shame, you think of the children of Israel through the wilderness. They're murmuring, they're complaining. But the Lord gave them the manna from the heaven. He brought them through the Red Sea, brought them through Jordan. And all of this glory to the Lord is being seen on his people. His people are showing this forth. Take away his people and you can't see the Lord's glory here below. And maybe remember that. I remember why the Lord has called his people. They're not to be in a monastery or shut away. He said, yet let your light shine before men. You do glorify your Father, which is in heaven. This is his inheritance. He's bought you. He suffered in your place. He shed his precious blood. He's called you by grace. And ye are to show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of nature's darkness. Recommend his grace. Point to what you are, you are by the grace of God. And this is what he wants them to know. There's more a tendency perhaps as we feel and know our sinnership to think, oh my, what I am. I'm nothing. I'm worthless. So 
I can't be of any help to any way can possibly show forth God's praise. But God says no. You do have nothing of yourself. You are only a sinner. But I will work in you. And men shall see the difference. They saw the difference with Paul. Saw the Tarsus. They see the difference with the people of God. And they'll glorify God. And they'll praise Him. They'll see what He hath wrought. They'll say, what hath God wrought? And when He works for them in providence, they'll say, the thing proceedeth from the Lord. This is the Lord's doing. He's marvellous in our eyes. He's the Lord's doing for his people, on his people, his inheritance. And it's put in this way, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. May we not think small thoughts of what the Lord does in us and for us and in the sight of those that are round about us. But may we truly be able to Give the Lord the honour and glory. When he appears in the prophet in providence, people notice it, you tell them why. Tell them where the help's come and tell them the blessings that you've had. Well, this then is the second, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And the third thing he desires for them is that they might know his power to us ward who believe. Again, it's so that they and we understand what actually has happened to us in being called and converted and what power doesn't cease then when we are converted. Now, we go back to chapter 1 and at the end, following on from our text in verse 19. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to us, Lord, who believe? Now he goes on and explains what this power is. According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come. And you think, what can you put alongside the raising of our Lord from the dead and the raising of a sinner from being dead in sins? Same power? Yes, that is what is put forth here. It's not a small thing. Now those who say, well, it's just a matter of our free will. You can choose God has, uh, Christ has died and he's atoned for all sin and all we've got to do to avail ourselves of it is to exercise our free will and accept the offer of salvation. It's very different from what is set forth here. It's set forth as a mighty power that's put forth by the grace of God, the power of God. Not a small thing at all. It is a raising from the dead. Paul is very clear. He were dead in trespasses and sins. Christ was dead, really dead. And he was raised again from the dead. 
You are dead. The great secret really of nearly every error that comes into the church of God regarding salvation is that men don't really believe they're as dead as they are. They think they're still partly alive. There's some, some good in them. Some, something whereby they can respond to offers or uh, exhortation. Not that we shouldn't exhort or uh, preach the gospel, but not in a way to suggest that this is a power we have. This is a power God has. And when one is called, the comfort that they have is not that they have begun a good work in themselves. It is God has begun a good work in them. And that he will carry it on. He will perform it. And it is not a small power, it's a mighty power. So when we look at our sins, and we look at how strong they are, and mighty they are, we have to remember the mighty hand of God. You think of the children of Israel. They were brought out of Egypt by the Lord's mighty hand. They were brought through the Red Sea by his mighty hand. But... Two years later, they come to the promised land, they send out the spies, they come back, they say, yes, but there's great mountains there, they've got chariots of iron the people have, and they're giants, and we, we cannot overcome them. What have they done? They'd forgotten the mighty power of God that brought them out of Egypt. And we can be the same. And Paul would say to the Ephesians, you don't forget and not be ignorant of the mighty power that called you by grace. And when you see these great obstacles and these mountains and these great sins and your own wicked heart and the world and Satan, you're not to despair. You've already known the power of God. That is what you need. That is how you will be delivered and to be saved. You are to know and understand exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe. We're not to be backward in prayer then, asking for that power and asking for that help from him who is able to do exceeding far above all that we can ask or think. Sometimes we fall into the trap, we think, well, just because we pray, we almost think as if we're dictating to God. And if he doesn't do what we dictate, then he hasn't got the power and ability to do it. Well, Satan can tempt like that. He says, if thou art the Son of God, command these stones that they may be made bread. But our Lord didn't look upon it that he had to prove his power by doing what Satan did. He knew his power. But he would exercise it when he will, not when Satan want to. And the Lord will exercise his power for us when he will, not when we want to. But we pray subject to the will of God, believing that he is able to do. And that if he doesn't, it's not because he hasn't power, nor is it because he doesn't love us, nor is it because he will not will that he be so, but it is not the time, it is not the right place, it is not like with Lazarus. There's another blessing, a greater blessing to be in store. The Lord knows what he will do. He will use his power for the good of his people and for his honour and glory, using his wisdom and might. But we as his people are to understand that power that is put forth first, that is still on our behalf. And what waits? 
What a great event waits for us. When we die, there's that power when we are in our utter weakness in death that shall raise our soul to be with God. And then at the last great day, raise our bodies, fashion and form them anew, incorruptible, a new body, a celestial body, and unite the soul with that body and bring us to be with God forever and ever. What mighty power, the same mighty power that worked the resurrection of Christ, the same mighty power that worked the quickening into life and the resurrection from spiritual death to spiritual life, the same power that brings us from literal death to be resurrected again and in his likeness in heaven. And is that power that we need right through life's journey. We're not to forget and not to be ignorant of that mighty power. And we're not, we don't know this just automatically by nature. It's evident because Paul here prays the Ephesians might be shown this by revelation, by the wisdom of God. But that for them to know it is for their comfort, for their good. And the, the Lord will do it in answer to prayer. May it be so tonight that we go forth from the house of God and that we have those things that we know the Lord has revealed and shown through this word and that is a comfort to us and a help to us, an encouragement to us to let our light shine before men and what the Lord has wrought in us to be to his honour and glory and to have that hope beyond the grave of what his power shall accomplish at last. Father, I will that they whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. Well, may the Lord bless this word. Amen.